Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. And I'm Chad. And... I almost forgot what I was supposed to say. Chad forgot who he was for a second there. Uh, I'm... Uh, uh, oh, fuck. Uh, are we going with Chad or the podcaster formerly known as Chad? <laughs> Uh, before we or get math man, <laughs> before we get started in this week's episode, here is a promo from one of the newest Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows, a podcast we hold near and dear, and we've been collaborating with since our first year. Um, you know them as Grognostics. I'm Steve. And I'm Jason. And we're the hosts of an explorative podcast called Grognostics, where we mix in one part of curiosity, one part comedy, one part craft beer tastings, one part education, and yet one part fictional stories. Good lord, that's a lot of parts. Look, uh, this, the show's really cool, okay? I don't know, I'm not so sure now. Sounds more confusing than the time we came over early to your Christmas party last year and found you bawling your eyes out, pantless, mind you, to a Lance Bass Hallmark movie. That was a phase, Jason. A phase, I tell ya. <laughs> Look, if you want to listen, grab a cold one and tune in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might even learn a thing or two. That's Grognostics, G-R-O-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Look, my pants are in the dryer. Lance just happened to be on. Sure, buddy. Sure. I'm so glad that they're in the podcast network. Me too. Me too. Oh, I love Steve and Jason. They're great, and they're so fun to work with. So I look forward to many more collaborations and shows and, down the road. And that's the only one on our network that has a focus on beer sampling and tasting. <laughs> Those episodes are always a lot of fun when you collaborate with them. Yes, they are. And they're skit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I still need to reach out to them and ask them if they can help me with the family feud thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. This week, we've got... The ever popular Boo Y'all. Boo Y'all. Boo Y'all. And I don't even know which one this is. Maybe eight. Boo Y'all. 12,569. Somewhere around there. I don't know. <laughs> 69. We'll call it Boo Y'all March 2022. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start our Boo Y'alls with a listener story. And this listener did not want to be named. So I'm giving him the name of Reginald. Reginald. And here is his story. So the summer I turned 21, 2012-ish, I moved from my grandparents to my own apartment and transferred my job. I worked as a cook at Hooters downtown Indianapolis. I moved to the Greenwood location close by my new place. And there I met a new girl named Bree. Me and her hit it off and decided to set up a date. We were both busy on Saturday, or so we decided on Sunday. Now, that Saturday, I had plans to go with my friend, Fat Boy, to a pagan rally. He knew I was into different stuff, so I go with him and his wife that night. And while I'm there, I can't believe it, I run into Bree. And it was odd, but, it went, but I went with it. Me and her ditched the rally and spent the weekend together. So Monday rolls around, and we make plans for that night. So this is where things genuinely get weird. We're in her bedroom that night, and she made a cup of hot cocoa. Well, you know how to take the spoon and spin it and and then blow on it and take a sip. Well, we did that, sharing this hot chocolate, and sat the cup down on the nightstand. 
And we were just talking. So I don't know, maybe a couple minutes passed and I reach over for the cup. I get begin to spin the spoon. When I pull it out, it's not a spoon. It was a fork. No BS. My eyes almost fell out of my head. What I couldn't the, believe it. What the fork? I sat there staring at this fork. She then starts apologizing to me and telling me that she had a spirit that has been with her forever. As she is saying this, the TV in the living room kicks on full, vo- full blast volume. So at this point, I'm convinced that she set me up. I search the entire place. No one is there. And she had zero opportunity to switch the spoon on me. So I'm extremely confused for the first time in my entire life. I have no explanation, none whatsoever. I tried talking to everyone, even looking into James Randy. So about two days later, I'm driving home from work. It's like 3 a.m. I work night, night closing shifts back then. I'm driving up the long road to my specific building at my, and my place was the very last one second floor. I'm driving from behind the building and I have a balcony with a sliding glass door with a long plastic pull curtain. I look up to my place and the light is on in the kitchen and the curtains are open. Clearly I'm seeing a solid black person standing behind the couch. Now these balcony doors went directly into the living room and kitchen behind that. So I do have a roommate and I assumed it was him immediately. This driveway is long and I'm looking up for maybe a minute or so and I begin to notice how black he is. I mean, the thing is completely solid and 3D. Clearly, I clearly could see mass. It's obvi- it was obvious to me it was a person in the kitchen. Light was backlighting them. He is staring at me and his arms are clearly on the back of the couch. So as I approach closer, he turns and walks to his left into my roommate's bedroom. Entire time, he's completely black, makes, but makes Peter Pan's shadow look like kids' tricks. I mean, this guy had masks and the blackest thing I've ever seen. If you know what Vena Black is, it's very similar to that. So I turn the corner and park, walk up my stairs, maybe 45 seconds, one minute or so, and I'm walking, I'm walking down the long hallway of doors to the very end. I get there, and you know how... They have those real long, thin windows right next to the front door. Well, I look into it as I'm putting my keys and there's not one light on. So I open the door, reach in, hit the light, look over. The blinds are completely shut, not moving whatsoever. I hope you understand what I mean. When you move these kinds of blinds, they stay swaying for like four minutes after. We had some of those in our old house. Mm-hmm. This place was completely still. I'm convinced it's still my roommate and once again, I searched the entire apartment with my gun. I'll add, nothing was there. The next thing, I even tried to recreate it and looked into the neighbor's back balcony to see if maybe I'd mistakenly was looking into his place. But no, because I lived on the end of his bedroom, which was opposite to mine. So, well, I never saw her again. For the first time in my life, I generally had seen proof of something strange. I don't know what you want to call him, a shadow man or not, To me, he was extremely real, and I promise he was there. If I could have been in the room, I literally could have punched him. This thing was a person, as far as I was concerned. But when I say black, he was solid and had mass. I was thinking, I think about it a lot. Now, I might add that I don't think this has any connection to my experience, but three months later, my 25-year-old roommate passed away from a disease called ataxia, A neurological disorder basically turned him into a vegetable very quickly and he passed away that winter. Thought it would add add that as well. Once again, I'm not convinced there's a connection there, but it was completely unexpected. A perfectly fit, healthy 25-year-old and we trained every day together. We both competed as strongmen and I was an avid BJJ student. So yes, we were very fit and definitely didn't think that that could happen, but it did. I still think about my friend these days or these years later, and well, what can I say? I have not experienced anything since back then. I work now for a local state park doing irrigation work. I've been in the same with the same woman for six years now. She has insisted that I get my story out there, and I picked a podcast that I liked to do it on. Aww. My stays are spent listening to other stories and encouraging others while at work. I see them much differently than I 
did when I was a teenager. Well, there you go. Do what you will with it. And then he goes on to tell us that he discovered our show for searching for the missing 411. And he likes us. He really <laughs> likes us. Thanks, Reginald. Reginald. Yeah, thank you. I believe you. I believe too. I too. And like I told him, I said, you know, I don't ever doubt anybody's stories because I've experienced stuff my, as well that I can't explain. And yeah. mm-hmm. I know it's real whether other people believe it or not. So, But I did really appreciate that story. And if any of our other listeners have stories they want to share, we'd love to hear them. Um, yes. And now on to Dave. What you got for us? I brought two stories which are based on real life events. I'll tell the first one now and the second one later. The Ooh, first saying both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I can edit that. We can make that happen. Just shuffle it together like a deck of cards. <laughs> the first one is the Corpsewood Manor Murders, a story of Satanism, sex parties, and slaughter. Oh yeah! By Gina DeMuro, published June twenty fifth, twenty eighteen, on the website allthatsinteresting.com. dot A little synopsis of it is, he and his lover took all their possessions and 12,000 doses of LSD to go live in the satanic sex castle of Scorpswood Manor. Then their story ended with a bloodbath. Dr. Charles Scudder came from a wealthy family and worked as a professor of pharmacology at Chicago's Loyola University. A good job by his own definition. Described by those who knew him as brilliant, polished, and soft-spoken, but confident. Scudder eventually grew fed up with city life, and in 1976 left the luxury of his Chicago mansion in pursuit of a simpler life. As he put it, Scudder longed for an escape from taxes, light bills, gas bills, water bills, heating bills, and the helpless feeling that resulted from watching my old neighborhood disintegrate into an urban ghetto. So the 50-year-old chose an isolated spot in the North Georgia woods to begin his new life. After leaving behind most of his worldly possessions, he decamped for the South with his lover, Joe Odom, constructing a new residence by hand in the depths of the forest. As Scudder said, within two short years, we were living in an elegant mini-castle. They called it Corpsewood Manor, named for the hauntingly bare autumn trees that dotted the area. To complete their country manor, the two added on a three-story chicken house. The first floor was for the poultry and food storage, the second for canned goods and the couple's pornography collection, and the third for their pink room, also known as their pleasure chamber. Ooh. But Scudder's homosexuality was far from the only secret he'd been keeping for he was also an official member of the Church of Satan. (laughs) As it turns out, there was much more to the soft-spoken, secretly satanic doctor than met the eye. Even at Loyola, Scudder's work was not that of a typical academic. For one, he performed performed government-funded experiments with mind-altering drugs like LSD. Meanwhile, he did things like dye his hair purple and kept a pet monkey. And when he left Leola for Corpsewood Manor, he took a souvenir with him, including two human skulls and about 12,000 doses of LSD. Now, souvenirs in hand, Scudder was free to express his Satanism within the confines of Corpsewood Manor. This forest sanctuary was guarded by two mastiffs, Beelzebub and Arseneth. One named for a demon, the other an H.P. Lovecraft character. Local legend adds that the pair also summoned a real demon to assist the dogs in guarding the house. Don't get too attached to these dogs. Fittingly, Scudder and Autumn also decorated Corpsewood Manor with various gothic paraphernalia, including the skulls that Scudder had swiped and a pink gargoyle he had brought from his old mansion. Scudder himself thought of Corpsewood Manor as more like a mausoleum, a tomb requiring care, cleaning, 
and endless costly repairs. Scudder also fashioned a stained glass window adorned with a prophet known as Baphomet, an important figure in the Church of Satan. And while Scudder took his Satanism seriously, it's important to understand what exactly that religion meant to him. Scudder, like other members of the Church of Satan, didn't worship Satan. It was instead an atheist who chose to celebrate the base, worldly pleasures that he and other church members felt were denied to humans by the Abrahamic religions. And celebrate such pleasures they did. Scudder and Odom liked to invite guests over for wild sex parties centered on the pink room. Indeed, painted entirely pink. This pleasure chamber was filled with mattresses. This pleasure chamber was filled with mattresses, candles, whips, chains, pornography, and even a logbook listing guests' sexual predilections. But while these acts were reportedly consensual, the pink room parties are the reason that on the night of December 12, 1982, Corpsewood Manor turned into a bloody murder scene. While Scudder and Odom, encouraging all their Corpsewood Manor guests to indulge their every whim in a haze of sex and drugs, things were bound to eventually implode. But things ultimately came to a far bloodier end than anyone would likely have imagined. Among the locals that Scudder and Odom invited into their home for parties and sexual adventures of one kind or another, were 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock and his roommate, 30-year-old Samuel West. Information is scarce and reports vary, but at least according to Amy Petula's The Corpsewood Manor Murders in North Georgia, Brock had several homosexual encounters with Scudder at Corpsewood, and eventually Brock bought West there for more of the same or at least the free booze and drugs. However, West not only strongly objected to any kind of homosexual activity, but also convinced Brock that he'd been taken advantage of by Scudder. Again, whether Brock had actually been taken advantage of remains unclear. Nevertheless, Brock and West decided to return to Corpsewood and rob the two men in their isolated forest home. Brock and West, with two teenagers named Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens, along for the ride, headed to Corpsewood Manor on December 12, 1982 with guns in tow. However, things didn't start off violently. Initially, the four guests acted as if they were just there to hang out and accepted Scudder's offer of homemade wine, as well as a potent huffing mixture of varnish, paint thinner, and other chemicals. Mm -mm. At some point during this drug and alcohol-fueled haze, Brock got down to business, retrieving a rifle from the car and promptly shooting Odom and the two dogs. Then Brock and Wes showed Scudder the bloodbath and did all they could to force him to give up whatever money he had. What Brock and West hadn't realized is that there were no riches at the house of any kind, And when they did eventually accept this fact, they shot Scudder five times in the head, took what little valuables were laying around, and fled the scene. They fled all the way to Mississippi, where they killed a man named Kirby Phelps as part of a robbery gone wrong on December 15th. Afterward, perhaps feeling remorseful, Brock returned to Georgia and turned himself into police on December 20th. West did the same in Chattanooga, Tennessee on December 25th. Eventually, West was found guilty on two counts of murder and sentenced to death, while Brock pleaded guilty and received three consecutive life terms. With that came the end of the strange and bloody story of the Corpsewood Manor murders. They were shitty-ass uh, robbers. If both uh, robbery attempts ended up in death... <laughs> yeah. Now this we'll get one, next time. This wasn't in the story, but I was looking into this, and Scudder actually drew a painting that was called. It was a painting of what his death would look like, and in the painting, he was gagged and shot in the head five times. Yeah, you showed me that. I was like, "That's fucking weird." I know. 
And there, there's a bunch of other stuff to it. Interesting. That's a good story. Yeah. My next story, or my first story, is a true story, too. And you might remember this case. This is from the book, 101 True Scary Stories to Read in Bed Tonight. And the story is called, I Almost Found the Bodies. In high school... I was at a party thrown by a kid I didn't know very well. I always got a bad vibe from him. But he was a friend with a, he was friends with a lot of my friends and they all wanted to go. Everything was cool and I was actually enjoying myself sitting out by the fire talking to everyone until it got cold. I asked anyone if they wanted another drink and then went inside to grab some beers and to hunt around for a blanket I could take out to the fire. I was just about to open the hall closet when the host came in and started screaming about me, how I was invading his space and being a rude guest. I'd never seen anyone flip out like that, so I just grabbed my stuff and headed home. A few days later, it came out that he had murdered his parents and left the bodies in the closet of their house. He had invited us over over to the party with his dead parents in the house. It's sick enough on its own, but sometimes I think about what would have happened to me if I found the closet where the parents were hidden. And I was separated from my friends who probably wouldn't immediately notice my absence. Booyah. You remember that story? I do. About the kid who killed his parents and threw the party? Yeah. Yeah. Chad, your turn. Mine is Creepypasta, written by Jacob Harper. The title is, My school thought there it was a serial killer. They were wrong. It started about a week after the first snowstorm of the winter season. I go to a private university in the Midwest. I won't name the school or the state for obvious reasons, mainly because I don't want to get any sort of trouble. Though, knowing what I know, I'm sure that's not avoidable. Her name was Macy Belliani. I didn't know her. She was a biology major and I'm studying theater. In short, our paths never crossed. And I never would have heard of her if it hadn't been for what happened to her. Her body was found on a residential road underneath a tree. A couple of students stumbled upon her on on their way to class that morning. The scene was horrific. While the police tried to keep everything under wraps, there was only so much they could do. Word got out quickly from people who had been there, seen her. Her chest had been opened, not ripped or torn, but opened carefully with precision. From there, her attacker had hollowed out her abdominal cavity. Everything had been taken. Just thinking about it makes me wince. Where she was found, I walked that road every morning to go to my first class of the day. Only that day, I had overslept. Usually, my roommate was pretty good about waking me up if I overslept, but that morning, he had a meeting with one of his professors. By the time I had woken up, she had already been found, and classes had been canceled for the day. I had a few friends who knew her, or rather, knew of her. She had a reputation. I would soon learn, as this sort of friendly but quiet character, always at the back of lecture halls, passive but delightful in that girl-next-door sort of way. She She must have kept to herself, it seems, since nobody really knew her all that well. She also had a darker reputation. Macy was a dealer, mostly weed, I think. But a few people claim she also sold them ecstasy. She was also a user, but of much stronger things. Heroin, or at least that's what the rumors said. She wore all black most of the time, mainly hoodies and sweatshirts, even on days when the weather was warmer. Call it human nature, but I think people always assumed she had been hiding something under those long sleeves. Long story short, as horrible as it was, people came to their own conclusions about Macy's death. The combination of drug deal gone wrong, wrong place, wrong time, permeated the gossip chatter of our intimate dormitories. I know it sounds terrible, but we are all we are college students. We already have so much going on. We like thrills and movie nights and drinks with friends and whatever, whatever's good and full of dopamine. The last thing we wanted to think about was this terrible thing that happened to this nice girl. So we stopped talking about it, and soon enough, people began to move on. That's when they found the second body. Her name was Grace Kessler. 
Her body was found three weeks later at a playground four minutes from campus. Her chest cavity had been carefully opened, her internal organs removed, and taken from the scene. What was different this time is that her head was missing. Again, I hadn't seen it or found her or anything, but I had read about it and heard about it from friends. In fact, everyone had. It was big news. Grace's parents were wealthy socialites, influential public figures. I think her dad was like a county commissioner or something. You know, the type. They wanted justice. They weren't alone either. The school was petrified and desperate for answers. Anyone with even a remote interest in true crime stuff knew what this meant. Two bodies in two months, killed in the same area, bearing identical trauma. The consensus was clear. And while the school was was hesitant to push the matter, the student body was not. We are being hunted by a serial killer. Grace's parents decided to sponsor a huge memorial ceremony that the school put up. At first it was just for Grace. But after public outcry and a few really pissed off Twitter rants, the memorial also took on the task of commemorating Macy's short life. Most people liked the idea, but I know a few thought it was excessive. My roommate Jason, who I admit can be kind of an asshole, thought the whole thing was stupid. I mean, I get what they're trying to do, I remember he told me late one night, but I hate that this school is making it mandatory. Don't get me wrong, it's horrible what happened to them, but why do you have to make it our problem? As I said, he can be kind of a jerk. The memorial, for all his anticipation, was really much, really wasn't much to gawk at. Jason, obviously, had no interest in going, so I met up with my friend Olivia, and we decided to make a night of it. The memorial was held at the school stadium, which was a soccer field. Our school doesn't have a football team, so this was the best we could do. Sounds like my high school. (laughs) Anyways, there were candles everywhere and more flowers than I'd ever seen in my life. It was touching for a while, but that faded pretty quickly. I hate to admit it, but been having been there myself, I kind of started to see where Jason was coming from. It didn't really feel like much of a memorial. It was more like rich people doing what rich people always do. It didn't help that her dad, the county commissioner I mentioned before, was running for re-election at the time, so at a certain point it started to feel like this was some big PR stunt to gain the public's favor or sympathy or whatever would keep the poor guy in office. It didn't help that Macy's inclusion really did feel like a last-minute decision, which Grace's parents, it seemed, were not huge fans of. We ended up leaving the memorial early and went for out for ice cream. It was my idea. I'd always, I had always sort of had a thing for Olivia, so any opportunity to spend time with her was time well spent for me. With all the commotion on campus, many people began to get antsy, especially the women. The two victims were women, and given the nature and, I guess, public understanding of serial killers, many of the women on campus felt like they were greater risk of being attacked than their male counterparts. At the same time, our school's theater program had decided to continue with their theatrical season. The school felt that, given the fear and tumultuous air over everyone's head, perhaps the opportunity for some healthy escapism would be therapeutic for our hurting community. So they did Sweeney Todd. (laughs) (laughs) And scream. A few felt the decision was a little tone deaf, but regardless, it was universally accepted. Universally accepted. And I have to admit, as a theater student, I was happy for the opportunity to work on a show. The issue was that we rehearsed every night at the school's theater until somewhat late, so afterwards we'd have to walk home in the dark. Many of us lived on campus, which was meant that it was only a two- to three-minute walk at worst. But Olivia had snagged an apartment at a great deal and thus lived about 13 minutes from campus. There weren't any convenient bus routes she could take, so her only means of getting to and from the theater was by foot. Naturally, I was afraid for her safety. We all were. I didn't want to overstep boundaries, but I knew I'd sleep better each night knowing she'd got home safe. I approached her one night during rehearsal. She was an actor in the show, and so I was able to grab a word with her while we were all on break. I wasn't sure how to approach the issue. I figured 
in the end that small talk would just make me seem patronizing. So instead, I just came right out with it. I told her I was worried about her getting home each night and told her that if she wanted, I would be happy to walk her home. I don't know what I was expecting, but to my surprise, she loved the idea. She told me she had been looking for a carpool partner, as she put it. I think she thought I must have lived in that direction. She never pushed it, though, and it's not like I was going to try and dissuade her. Then she took my hands in her hands and smiled, that damn smile that made me melt inside. Her hands, they were so soft, and holding them felt so right. Thank you, Alex. I'll find you after rehearsal. With that, the director came back into the room, and we were called back to space. I was working on hanging some lights and went back to that, but I couldn't shake how awesome this all felt. I thought things would actually work out for once. Rehearsal ended two hours later at 10. It was a cold night, and it had snowed earlier, so the road was cased with a thin sheet of ice. I wanted to race out of the building to find Olivia, but I had to stay back to help our lighting head fix some stuff. I got out of there 13 minutes later and threw my coat and scarf on, my gloves, my hats, my, my gloves and hat in my hands. I raced out to the theater's lobby, where to my surprise and delight, Olivia was waiting for me. Hey, she shouted with a smile on her face. Olivia lived in the opposite direction from my dorm. I hadn't walked this way before, and honestly, despite the bravado I was desperately to exude, I had no clue where I was going. I thought at some point she would ask where I lived and I'd have to come up with some bullshit excuse, but she never pressed me for answers. She didn't talk much during the first half of the walk. I made small talk about the show we were both in, and I managed to make her laugh a few times, which felt great. Then about halfway, or what felt like halfway to her house, she reached out and took my hand. She held on with a firm grip, and even through my gloves, I could feel her soft, smooth hands touching me. Alex... Can I be honest with you, she asked. The question confused me. Of course you can, I thought. But figuring that was a little strong. Sure, I told her. Firmly, but with character. She stopped walking. I stopped too. She turned to face me. I like you, Alex. And I've liked you for a long time. But I've never had the chance to tell you. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. For a moment, I considered the possibility that I was dreaming. But after noticing a woman in the distance walking our way, I figured that was too specific a detail to all be in my head. Olivia, I started. This is crazy, but I like you too, and have for a really long time. It sounded better in my head, but it got the point across. She leaned over and kissed me, passionately. This was my first kiss. It was insane. I felt like I was living in a movie. Our lips parted briefly, and I wasn't sure what to think. I saw my peripherals that the woman from before was close by now, and I moved to the side to make room for her to pass. I just feel I should be honest with you, Olivia continued. It was an odd way of phrasing it. Felt, you mean? I joked. She smiled and turned. Excuse me, she said. It wasn't to me. She had stopped to ask the woman, who by this point was right in front of us. Sorry, the woman responded. I noticed she had earbuds in, and she had reached up to remove them, in hopes of hearing what had been asked of her. She never did. In one swift motion, Olivia reached over and broke her neck. I didn't know what to think, do, or feel. The woman's lifeless body fell to the ground in a revolting, broken heap. Without a moment to spare, Olivia bent down and leaned over the woman's abdomen. That's when I noticed the claws. Olivia's fingers, the same fingers which moments ago were interlocked with my own, now had a vicious knife-like fingernails protruding from them. With the smile still painted on her face, she pierced the woman's chest with her nails and slowly began to cut. She moved her fingernails in a surgical manner, being sure to be neat. After a moment, Olivia retracted her hand and peeled the skin back, creating an opening in the woman's belly. In the cold night air, I could feel her fleeting body heat radiating from the freshly formed hole in her chest. Then, Olivia reached both her hands inside and pulled out the woman's intestines. She took them up in her hands, and I watched in horror as her jaw opened wider than I'd ever known possible. It looked like a snake unhinging its jaw to eat an egg. 
She placed the heaping mound of organ tissue into her elongated mouth and then closed it, returning it to normal size. Then she again retrieved another heap of organs and repeated the process. Ew, those are full of poop. (laughs) I watched. I didn't know what else to do. At first, I silently prayed that someone would come, that someone would see what was happening and call the police so I could be saved from this unfolding horror. But then after considering how easily Olivia had dispatched of the last one, I prayed instead that no one would hear and come to investigate. I prayed that no one else would fall victim to this inhumane terror. As I stood there, contemplating these prayers, I noticed something. Each time Olivia removed her hands from the woman's chest, the blood which sat upon them just seemed to trickle off like water over oil. It never stuck to her skin, never stained her hands. Despite the brutal actions that were being engaged, her hands remained as clean as they had always been. The same could be said for the rest of her skin. Only her clothes were susceptible to the flowing red liquid. With the pop, I watched her dislodge the human, the woman's heart. And finally, heaving into her open snake mouth, she emptied the cavity as she, she had created. I thought perhaps the nightmare was over. But then she reached up with her hands and cupped the woman's head. Repositioning her head to be over the woman's, she quickly unhinged her jaw once more and slowly swallowed the human's head whole. When her mouth had covered everything up to the neck, a sickening sound was produced as she swiftly decapitated the body with her teeth, which now, I saw, were jagged and razor sharp. She swallowed the head in a matter of seconds before wiping her lips and standing again to face me. That smile... That damn smile that used to make me melt. It was still painted across her face. It never left her lips the whole time she was on the ground, feeding. What's wrong, she asked. Her tone was pathetic. She seemed more frightened by my disgust than I was by her actions. It was as if she truly could not place the origin of my discomfort. I fell back horrified. What are you? She take. She looked taken back. For a moment, the smile faded. I thought, in an instant, I could be next. Then the smile returned as quickly as he had left. Well, I guess I'm your serial killer, she said as if it was a joke. And as she said it, she began to giggle, then chuckle, then laugh. She found it hysterical. Come on, big guy, she said. You still have to walk me home. We got to her apartment about five minutes later. I don't remember anything during the rest of the, the walk. I was in shock. I didn't know what to do. When we reached her home, she turned again to face me. Alex, you're covered in blood. I looked down at myself. I hadn't noticed it before, but she was right. My clothes were stained. It looked bad. I'm I'm fine, I said. I was so far gone at that point in the pale moonlight, I barely noticed it. Her hands, her clean hands, she didn't have fingerprints. I woke up the next morning in her house, in her bed. Arm was draped over her body. We were both unclothed, but I had no memory of how I found myself in this position. I got out of bed without waking her and moved about the room finding my clothes. When I was dressed, I found my backpack. I was prepared to walk out the front door as I was leaving. I heard her call from the back room, Alex, where are you going? I didn't answer. I got back to my dorm room around noon. Jason was sitting there with the blinds drawn playing video games. Dude, you look like shit. The comment scared me for a moment. I'd forgotten about the blood. I looked down at myself and noticed that my clean seemed completely clean. She must have washed them, I thought. I had a rough night. was the only explanation I gave Jason before collapsing on my bed for the next six hours. When I woke up later that night, I had multiple texts from Olivia. She wanted to know where I was, if I was okay, if I was safe. She had apologized for what happened the night before. But I still wasn't sure, even sure what happened. My clothes were cleaned. Had I just dreamt it? Some friends of mine had told me that Olivia was into LSD. So I wondered if maybe this was just a result of a bad trip. They found the woman's body later that day. Social media lit up. The serial killer had struck again. I haven't answered any of Olivia's texts. She keeps sending them and seems genuinely apologetic. But I mean, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond to this? What the hell is going on? I thought about going to the cops, but like, with what? What do I even have to give them? 
what did I even see? I don't know what to do. I haven't left my room for the past week. Keep emailing my professors and telling them I'm sick, but I'm not sure how much longer this will work. I had to tell someone. I had to. So, I did. I told Jason. Just now. Not 20 minutes ago. He didn't know what to think. He told me I need to relax and take a deep breath. I told him my theory about an acid trip, and he figured that was the most logical answer. He could tell I was really shaken up, so he offered to talk to Olivia for me. He's a really nice guy like that, and had a re- and w- like that, and a really good friend. It's a really nice thing for him to do. It's funny though; I don't remember them being friends. I guess he's just trying to help. Who knows? Maybe this might all blow over in the end. I'm trying to think positive. Anyways, I'm thinking I should get some sleep. I don't want to freak myself out. I don't think the drugs have left my system yet because I'm still seeing things. I'm sure I just need rest. But I could have sworn when he was talking to me, when he grabbed my shoulder with his smooth hands and told me everything was going to be okay, I caught a glimpse of Jason's hands. And I could have sworn he had no fingerprints. Booyah. That was interesting. Not where I thought it was going. No, no, me either. I was pretty convinced it was Jason. Yeah, that, I, yeah. I thought it was Jason, or I thought it was him. Mm-hmm. And he was just like acting like he wasn't the serial killer. And yeah, <laughs> interesting. My next one is the edge of the cornfield. I grew up on a farm with my family, and it generally felt pretty safe. But occasionally my mom would send me out on chores after dinner when it was already dark. Wandering around near the edge of the cornfield really creeped me out, even though I, th- even though I knew my parents were right in the house. Chalk it up to having seen children of the corn and having an active imagination. I was out spreading compost for the chickens, when coming from just a few feet away from the cornfield, I heard a man's whistle. <laughs> I sprinted back to the house where my dad was there reading the paper. I told him what I'd heard. He headed out with a mag light, but didn't see anyone. The next morning, however, there were cigarette butts on the ground near the entrance of the field. Bum, bum, bum. Ooh, y'all. <laughs> 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 Hey, come check this out. <laughs> fuck wedgie. Near. Smoking fuck wedgie. Dave, what is your next one? The strange case of the human Bigfoot War of 1855 Near. by Brent Swancer. Within the world of cryptozoology, there is perhaps no other mystery creature that is as widely talked about and discussed as the Sasquatch. The massive ape-like wild men have become synonymous with the world of cryptids and have produced countless weird tales that range from the somewhat plausible to the completely insane. Hovering here in the realm of the latter is a case that I am embarrassed to say I only recently stumbled across, but which struck me with its spectacular imagery and near absurdity. In a very intriguing historical oddity, There have been reports of an actual war between humans and Bigfoot, which seems to have been mostly forgotten, yet in some circles much talked about. If it sounds truly insane, it is because it is. Let's take a look. The very bizarre account begins in 1855 in the region of the present U.S. states of Oklahoma and Arkansas where the once mighty Choctaw nation of the Native Americans once ruled over all they saw. In this year, there was an apparent scourge of unseen bandits venturing forth from the wilderness to steal vegetables and even livestock. This might have been the end of it if it were not for the claim that the trespassers are said to have soon graduated to kidnapping people, mostly children, which provoked a fierce reaction in the tribe. A search party was allegedly formed composed of a group of uncommonly large cavalry warriors called the Light Horsemen. 
the largest of whom was the towering Hamas Tubby and his six sons, who were widely reported as standing at around seven feet or more in height. These real giants, along with a contingent of 30 other very large and fierce horseback riding warriors, headed out, led by a part French, part Choctaw general by the name of Joshua Lafleur, And their mission was to find the culprits and put an end to their reign. Wonderful four counties named after him. He was a real person. As they headed out into the wilderness in the early morning hours from the tribal cattle, from the tribal capital in Tuscaloma, fully armed with high-powered rifles and pistols, and thirsty for vengeance, these menacing, proud warriors no doubt thought that this would be a simple matter of routing some ragtag group of bandits. Yet they were in for quite a bizarre surprise, to say the least. <coughs> the group of warriors penetrated deep into the region, which is now known as the McCurtain County Wilderness Area of present-day Oklahoma. And after eight hours of riding nonstop through the blazing June sun, they stopped at a spot near the Clover River to rest and eat, before remounting and continuing on the last leg of their tiring journey. It was after nearly 14 hours of almost nonstop riding that the men reached the area where the bandits were said to be most active. And it was here that Lefleur suddenly gave the order to halt, as if he had seen something that caught his attention. Using a crude telescope, Lefleur peered off into the distance as the men rumbled amongst themselves and the horses huffed, and chuffed. The general claimed that he could see something moving about ahead and voiced his confidence that it was the enemy before putting the telescope aside and giving the warriors the order to charge. The massive bloodthirsty warriors must have been quite a sight as they howled and rushed their horses through the trees in a mad dash into battle, weapons drawn and ready to fight. Yet their powerful drive forward was soon brought to a halt when the unbearably stench of decay hit them like a wall and their steeds began to inexplicably buck and rear in an abrupt profound panic, knocking several of them to the mossy ground to writhe around hacking and coughing. Such was the intensity of the supposed olfactory assault. Some of the warriors, including the Tubbies and Lefleur himself, were allegedly able to control their animals and advance past this nauseating wave of rotting stink to rush towards the bandits. And as they exploded out into the forest clearing, the source of the Stygian stench was clear. There in the center of the clearing, they found what was described as some sort of earthen mound that had embedded within it and strewn about it numerous corpses in varying levels of decomposition, drawing a fog of flies that droned all about the startled warriors. Of human bandits there were no sign, but looming nearby were three enormous, ape-like creatures covered with hair, so tall as to dwarf even the most statuesque of the tubbies themselves. These beastmen perpetually stood there glaring in their direction, completely unafraid of the tribal warriors. What followed next is just as dramatic and over-the-top as any action movie. Lafleur is said to have charged the strange beast without hesitation, pistol and saber in hand and howling the whole time. One of the creatures stepped forward and lashed out with a massive hand swat the general's horse to the side of its head with a thunderous blow that sent it sprawling to the ground dead. Lafleur was ejected to the ground but was soon on his feet with pistol blazing, managing to hit the wild men several times but barely slowing it down at all. Even after sustaining several gunshot wounds, it barely bled at all, seemed to have not even felt it, and lunged forward to grab the man by the hand and rip it clean off. 
all of this had happened before the others had even had any time to react, nor indeed any process the situation at all, and they had witnessed it in a wide-eyed stupor. Upon seeing their general slump to the ground without a head, and in this vicious ape-like creature loomed over this carcass, they produced their rifles and launched a withering volley of bullets at the monsters, which managed to drop all but one of them. The grievously injured creatures perpetually limped off in a bid to escape, but was set upon with one of the tubby brothers, who pounced and apparently cut its head off with his hunting knife. <laughs> in the aftermath, it was just a few scattered native warriors poised and ready for the next attack that would never come. The smell of gun smoke and that fetid stench of dead bodies, feces, and urine lingering all around them. In the background, that tubby brother crouched over the hulking beast with blood on his knife and hands. The natives then went about the grim work of burying the dead, finding the bodies of at least 19 children among them, and the bodies of the hulking beast were burned on a bonfire. Boo, y'all. <laughs> yeah, LaFleur County is down there by, by Curtin County. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it must be named after him. Yeah, he, he's a real guy. That's the Bigfoot area. This is some of the legend that surrounds him that doesn't get talked about very often. We're famous. Oklahoma's in a story. <clears throat> All right, my next one is He Wasn't the Mailman. Dad? <laughs> when I was 11, I was homesick from school one day. My mom was a single mom and really couldn't afford extra time off, so I convinced her I would be fine and could just watch cartoons and make myself a sandwich for lunch. I was laying on the couch watching TV in the early afternoon when I heard a knock at the door. I wasn't supposed to answer it, but the way the house was set up, you could see me laying on the couch from the front yard through the big picture window. I didn't want to be rude, so I walked to the window and looked out. I couldn't see anyone but heard a man over by the front door say, Mailman, got a package for you. I was a kid, and the idea of a package package was really exciting to me, and I really wanted to open the door and get it, but I knew I wasn't supposed to and had a bad feeling about it. I decided to go upstairs and look out the front door from my bedroom window, which had a clear view of the area. I looked out and saw a man. He wasn't wearing a mailman uniform. He didn't even have a package. I looked out into the street and couldn't see a mail truck either. I stayed locked in my bedroom until my mom came home and went back to school the next day, even though I was sick. I have guarantee I, that feels like a true story about my life. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from the book, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. A man who lived in Leeds. Some say this rhyme doesn't mean anything. Others are not so sure. There was a man who lived in Leeds. He filled his garden full of seeds. And when the seeds began to grow, it was like a garden filled with snow. But when the snow began to melt, it was like a ship without a belt. And when the ship began to sail, it was like a bird without a tail. And when the bird began to fly, it was like an eagle in the sky. And when the sky began to roar. It was like a lion at my door. Now drop your voice. And when the door began to crack, it was like a penknife in my back. And when my back began to bleed, turn out any lights. I was dead, dead, dead indeed. Jump at your friends and scream, Ah! 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 Kind of got off on the rhyme in there for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this one's called It Followed Me Home. I'm an avid hiker. One summer I had a goal to hike in every state park within a hundred mile drive of my home. It took me it took me some pretty off the beat path places and some trails that weren't often hiked. On one particular hike, I stumbled across the body of a man who had obviously committed suicide. It was a horrible experience that I thought would end when I immediately returned to alert the park rangers about what I saw. 
But for months afterward, I had vivid, lucid nightmares about this man where he, where he would tell me horribly nasty things. The dreams were incredibly realistic and happened every single night. He wanted me to kill myself. He was trying to goad me into it. He told me that I didn't deserve to live. He told me my wife and children were ashamed of me and would be relieved if I died. It got to the point where I was really losing my mind. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't focus at work. And I was physically and mentally exhausted. At that point, I would try anything. So I went to a psychic who told me that the spirit had attached itself to me and I needed to cleanse it. She sent me to a witch who burned some things in a bowl and made sure the smoke went all over my body. I didn't believe in this stuff, but again, I was desperate, and the night after was the first night I got real sleep in months. The man hasn't been back since, but I'm still uneasy. I can't believe that stuff like this really happens. I wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen to me. Booyah. I saw a bitch in the house. I saw saw, um, a TikTok video the other day. And it was a guy, and he was cleaning off his um, the snow from his car with his broom. And he said, my wife's going to be really mad when she sees that I'm cleaning off my car with hers. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that one, too, and it made me think of the time that I asked for a broom for Christmas. And with that skipping a beat, you looked at me and said, your car broke? <laughs> Sadly, I didn't get this video at first. I was like, her car with his car what the hell is he (laughs) (laughs) this is there's a witch in the house I had a dream once where I looked in the mirror and my reflection spoke to me calmly and said you need to wake up there's a witch in the house I woke up and looked over at my wife who had blood all over her face I shook her awake and turned on the light and asked her what happened I thought she had a bloody nose or something, but after we cleaned some of the blood off, we found a cut on her forehead that ended up requiring stitches. We looked all over the bed for something that might have cut her, but we never found anything sharper out of place. Whatever caused it didn't even wake her up. Boo, y'all. There's not a lot of commas in that. <laughs> one large one, Ronson. <laughs> Almost. It's only a paragraph. Pretty good, though. This one is called (laughs) In high school, my parents went away on weekends a lot because they were renovating my grandfather's old lake home into a cabin that the whole family could use. They'd usually leave on Friday afternoon and would not return until Sunday afternoon. We lived in a smallish suburb, so I guess, guess word got around. One weekend, my mom was sick, and they decided to stay in town for the weekend. But because we parked our cars in the garage, anyone could probably assume that they were gone like normal. On Friday night, I fell asleep watching TV in the living room. I was on the couch that was very clearly visible from the sliding door on the deck, which had stairs going down to the backyard. Basically, if you really wanted to, you could walk up and look directly in our house and see me since I was illuminated by the light on the TV. I woke up suddenly and saw a man standing on the deck with the shh signal with his finger to his lips. I did not shh. I screamed my lungs out and my dad came running down the hall to see what was going on. I pointed to the deck and my dad saw the guy too and sprinted towards the door. But in the time it took him to open the door and get outside, the guy had a lead and took off and my dad couldn't catch him. I don't know who he was or what he wanted, but I do know I was very nearly alone in that house where no one would have noticed something that was amiss for several days. Booyah. Those ones are always kind of scary like that. Just like Those are scarier to me than much. ghosts. Yeah. Like for, for sure. A cabin at night. I was at a friend's cabin up north with a big group of girls one weekend. We went to the local bar and happened to meet a group of guys who were staying in the cabin at the same lake, about seven cabins cabins down from where we were. That's quite a distance because each cabin is set up somewhat privately on its own bunch of woods. 
But it's not too far to walk if you're patient. Late that night, the group at our cabin was getting settled down to go to bed, and one of the other girls and I were wide awake. We decided to wander down to the guy's cabin to see if anyone was still partying. The quickest path to our to their cabin was to walk through the shallow water and the, along the lake's beach, hopping up occasionally on other people's docks and past the parts of inhabited by cabins. All went well, and we met up with the other group and ended up hanging out for a few more hours. The walk home got scary as we sobered up a bit, and then we were aware of how dark everything towards the lake shore was, how illuminated we were by the moonlight on the water, and how conspicuous we were, making noises, and even even as we tried to wade quietly through the knee-length water. We were about halfway home when we walked up on a particular beach to go around the dock. The cabin looked large and it was completely dark. We had no idea if it was inhabited or if anyone was inhabiting the place for the weekend or not. As we stepped onto the beach, we heard several loud bangs, and which, sound, which sounded as if someone was banging their fists on the door. We froze, unsure if someone was in the house, had spotted us, and were ang- angry we were trespassing and banging. And the banging got happened again louder this time. We started... You scared me. <laughs> we started to run through the water faster because we knew we were making a lot of noise at this point and just wanted to get home. The whole time we were running, we kept hearing banging coming from the dark cabin. We got home and went inside and locked all the doors, hoping whoever was angry hadn't followed. A while later, I learned that we may have been witness to a burglary or home invasion. One tactic people would use is bang on the door for a while to make sure that no one is home before entering. If they would have looked towards the water, they would have found easier prey than whoever might have been locked inside the home. <laughs> it reminds me of that, uh, the Girl Scout murders in the 70s. Yeah. It happened east of Howe. Yes. I can remember, reminds me of almost every time we went camping at Lake Thunderbird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We quit camping there because they were, dad was getting tired of every time we'd go camping, there seemed to be like a dead body found. And he's like, all right. So we went and started camping at Arbuckle a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a nicer facilities anyway. So, but yes, that is our boo, y'all. Y'all brought some good stories. Thank you. You did too. This book has a lot of really cool, creepy stories. And like I said, most of them were like true crime ish, which to me is far more scary than ghosts. ghosts and mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, um, yeah, I would take my chances with a ghost any day. You get the people <laughs> away from me. <laughs> people be crazy. People be cray cray. Um, I guess that's going to do it for tonight's episode. Be sure to check out the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We've got Grognostics, XV Planus, Primordia, Luxicult, Smuts Up, Ad Hoc History, Administrism, and Faith Blind Council. And also, don't forget to go and check out the Parabox Monthly. Use the link in the show description and use promo code Paranormalcy at checkout to get 10% off your first order. And you'll get an awesome paranormal t-shirt sent to you each month. I am wearing Atlantis today. This one's one of my favorites just color-wise. It's yeah. It's like one of my favorite color combinations is the light blue and like a... Lime green? Not quite lime green. I'm trying to think what the color... I, I would say like a neon green. Yeah. It's it's a really cool color combination. Color-wise, this is my favorite shirt. Image-wise... It's cool image, but it's not one of my favorite image yeah. wise. But color wise, I like it's lots. Also, as we start rolling towards the spooky season, I mean, it's never too early to start getting ready. You can use the link in this show description for HalloweenCostumes.com and we get a little credit for your order, which would be awesome. And also, don't forget to check out our Patreon. Our Patreon will have um, Dave reading. Yep. Some uh, Greek or no Norse mythology. Norse, some Norse mythology. Nor- Dave reading some Norse mythology. 
Eventually, Chad will get our video edited from our very first um, uh, reaction YouTube, video. Yeah. Uh, and we figured out the sound issue that we had on that video, so that the next one will be even be better. better. <laughs> the, editing, the editing will be done quicker on the next one, too, because I'll finally figure out how to do the damn thing. <laughs> um, if anyone knows a really good free video editing software, let me know. And I think that's going to do it. So until next time. Keep digging. Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com. <laughs>